Lord, but your word. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would speak powerfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. Um, so we've been, uh, last couple of weeks, I've been talking about uh, various subjects. Last week, we talked about the power of community and how we're meant to be uh, together and not isolated. My role as a pastor is really, really clear. It's to help and support you in your journey towards becoming more like Jesus. And I, I do my very best to lift Jesus up. We're a Jesus-centered church, and uh, I, I do my best to lift him up every week. I also do my best, sometimes literally yelling, watch out, just be careful of this aspect of life, because this can sneak up behind you and it can just pull you down. Whenever I, whenever I uh, research and prepare, I always think the so what, this is great information, so what? What's the, what's the point? If I was a teenager sat listening to this message, how is this going to impact my life? If I'm a single mom or a single dad or if I'm somebody who is retired, what is the impact of this message? Well, today I'm going to share a message that really I'm going to be given a bit of a Clint Eastwood squinty stare down on something that is so powerful, it could actually cause some of you never to come back to this church. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stare it down. And I do with some kind of trepidation because as I lift Jesus up and I yell, watch out, and I stare down this thing that is so powerful, this alluring false God that gives an illusion of divine power to each of us, that this, this idea that we can, this God gives us a, a, the thought that we can control this world and conform it to our will, a false God that seeks to manipulate us to the nth degree, that would seek to isolate us from others. And this false God is so appealing, an alternative trusting to God that it's just trust in me, you don't need anything else. It's really a watch out sermon. Outside of idolatry, this is the number one most talked about subject in the whole of the Bible, even more than faith and prayer combined. This subject destroys families, destroys marriages, destroys lives, it destroys communities, cities, countries, and whole cultures, and it can be seen all the way through our history. I'm going to talk to you about parenting Gen Zs. No, I'm not. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not. And yet, the second I tell you what this subject is, I've built it up. There's going to be an inner eye roll. You may even have an actual eye roll, so please keep an eye on the person next to you. But a lot of you are going to have an inner eye roll. That's how clever and insidious this enemy is. Because it's literally like we've been convinced that it's okay. But it's a little bit like having breakfast with Satan, thinking that he's your best friend. It's clever. So I'm going to stand so shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, the greatest teacher that has ever walked this planet. Historians and atheists would agree. The one person who really has changed the trajectory of our history. I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with this man, Jesus, as we together point out this God that seeks to destroy you. And together, him and I are going to say, watch out. Watch out. Here's my title. You ready? Yes, my friends, we're going to talk about money. 
So, some disclaimers. Yes, this is uncomfortable. This is uncomfortable. Church has an unfortunate reputation to be, made, uh, to be about money. Right now, I am quite convinced on some TV channels, somewhere in America especially, is some probably quite squat, bald, overweight, nothing wrong with that, person dripping with sweat saying, if you send me $50, I'm going to wipe my brow and you can have this handkerchief and it's going to change your life. That's foul, unbiblical, evil teaching. But it has a reputation in the church over thousands of years. It's uncomfortable because some of you may be thinking that's what church is about. Some of you have invited your friends for months to come to church. And this is the day they said yes. And the pastor's talking about money. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Yes, this is uncomfortable. This is the first time I have preached about money since November the 17th, 2017. Four years ago. Four years ago. I can stand on that kind of credibility knowing that this church is not about money. I don't want this. You don't want this. So why don't we just avoid it? Well, the reality is, is that I've made a commitment to teach the Bible and I've not made a commitment to woo people into church. Sorry if you did invite your friend. <laughs> I, I haven't made a commitment to just to fill a room. I made a commitment to be faithful to the scriptures because I truly believe that this divine uh, library called the Bible does change lives. I can't avoid it. But let me promise you this. I am not seeking to manipulate you. We're not going to send a bag around halfway through because, frankly, we're not allowed in COVID anyway. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. My commitment, and please listen to, you, to me, is not some kind of divine drive-by guilting. My desire is that we as a church would be a generous church. Generosity is my goal. Generosity is my goal. My outcome is less about you and your offering and more about the power of money over our hearts. Second disclaimer, you are very, very generous and you are very, very generous. There are people sat in this room and across the church network that continually just humble me by their generosity over the work of this church over the years. If you're not sure about the work of this church, you need to stick around a bit and you need to listen to some of the announcements. You need to look at the website and you'll see how we have sought diligently to, see, to serve our community, our city, our country and our world and that is made possible by people's generosity. There are some people who give sacrificially and generously every month and then even more. There are some people who do not but still come to this church on a regular basis. And it's not my job to manipulate you into feeling guilty to give more because the Bible says that we ought to be cheerfully, sacrificially and generously giving on a regular basis. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do that, not my job. And like I said last week, I came this massive revelation a few weeks ago that I'm not God. And I can't change hearts or minds. But what I can do is preach what the Bible says. So if it makes you feel uncomfortable, it makes me feel uncomfortable, then, then why, am I, why am I doing this? <laughs> why, why am I doing it? Well, disclaimer number three, our culture sends messages about money all the time. All the time. And actually, it would be remiss of me sinful of me to avoid this subject because it makes me feel bad and you feel bad when our whole culture is speaking about it all the time. 
We talk about difficult subjects in this church. This is a difficult one. And yet, it's even though the, the culture speaks about money all the time, so does the Bible. I've already said it speaks about it over 2,000 times in the whole of the canon of Scripture. It's the second most talked about theme in the Bible after idols, more than prayer and faith combined. Jesus talked about money more than any other subject outside of the kingdom of God. More than heaven and hell combined, Jesus spoke about money. Why? 25% of his teaching was on money. Just imagine for a second if you knew once a month that I was going to talk about giving. I wonder whether we'd have the, we've put extra chairs out this morning. I wonder whether we would need to do that on that Sunday. Praise the Lord. So why does the Bible highlight money so much? It's really simple. Money is about much more than money. Money is about much more than money. Jesus said it's more blessed, which means happy, to give than to receive. And so right from the outset, I can with total confidence say you will be happier if you live a life of generosity. Generous people, social science research shows us that Jesus is in fact correct Because generous people are happier, healthier, live longer, and nicer to be around than greedy people. That is not a shock to any of us if you are generous. See, again, this is my aim. My aim is not to see the offering of this church increase, although that would be great because you are generous and we want to do more. We do want to do more in our church and we do want to encourage people to give But at the end of the day, I know by teaching on this that it actually will lead to you feeling freer and more joy in your life than if you lived a life of greediness. The empirical evidence of social science says categorically that more money means more happiness is actually fake news. Some of you are thinking, I'd like to test that empirical evidence. And the interesting thing about money and greed and generosity is we know it's a problem. Zogby, what a great name, Analytics, had a large benchmark poll in which they asked the respondents to uh, and, and various questions, and they identified greed and materialism was the number one, quote, most urgent problem in our culture. Poverty and economic fa- justice were second. So the number one problem that the respondents said in our culture was greed and materialism. We know it's a problem, but we know it's a problem for other people, not for me. Is that not true? Other people are greedy and materialistic and want more money, but not me, because there's always somebody richer to throw a stone at. There's always somebody richer to go, yeah, but at least I'm not like them. The BBC conducted a poll on the seven deadly sins, anger, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, and sloth. Which sin, they asked, have you committed in the last month? Plenty of British people, that's me, copped to being lazy, proud, I'm so proud to be British right now, lazy, proud, envious, and angry. Guess what the number seventh sin was? Greed. Tim Keller said this, even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. Greed hides itself from the victim beautifully. We have a blind spot. We have lots of blind spots. 
We live with blind spots. And what I mean by that, we have parts of our, our world that we just don't see. Other people might be able to see it, but we just don't see it. My dad, who may be here, I'm not sure. Dad, are you here? There he is. Uh, I see that hand. That's one. Praise the Lord. My dad was, uh, was a police chief for many years before becoming a pastor. He retired and then became a pastor, which is, which is brilliant. But one of my favorite stories, and he has many, many stories about when he was a police officer. I believe at the time he was ranked around a sergeant. And it was his job to show this other police officer around the patch, the area that he was policing at that time. So you're probably talking about in the early 80s, something like that. And, uh, and so he was driving around, and in the area that we lived, there was lots of back roads and lots of farm areas, as well as it being very urban. It quickly kind of spilled over into farmland. And so my dad was showing this police officer around, and they came. And those of you who have ever driven around Britain, especially in more rural Britain, the roads get really, really narrow. If you think the roads in Canada get narrow, you need to go to Britain where literally sometimes your wing mirrors are brushing the hedgerows. And if you meet somebody head on, you actually have to reverse, I'm not joking, 100, 200, 300 meters to find a divot in the fence to reverse into so somebody can pass you. Usually a farmer in a Land Rover going way too fast with an elbow sticking out like this, flat cap. Like this. So he's, my dad is driving through these narrow roads, and he comes upon a group of people right in the middle of the road. So dad parks, and he says this, not me. Okay? My dad had a moment of, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to see what this is all about. This is him talking. He was like, I was a little bit prideful at that moment. wanted to show this new police officer that I knew how to take control of a situation. So he gets out of the police car, and he walks, and the other uh, police officer is following after him. Dad puts his cap on, and he walks, and he pushes his way through this crowd. And there's like eight or nine, ten people around this cow in the middle of the road, lying on its side. My dad takes off his cap, hands it to the other police officer, hold this. He kneels down beside the cow, puts his head on its chest, see if he could feel, hear a heartbeat or feel a heartbeat. He puts his hand in front of the cow's snout. That's nose for those of you who don't know anything about cows. <laughs> to feel its breath. It looks for a pulse. He looks for a pulse. All the while, this crowd of people are just watching him, including the brand new police officer. So my dad is kind of is down there, and he's doing this for a number of times. He's poking and prodding and listening and feeling. And, and, and then eventually he stands up and gets his cap off the police officer, and then he looks at the crowd and goes, it's dead. And then the gentleman in the crowd goes, yeah, I know, I'm a veterinarian. <laughs> and so is he, and so is she, and so is he, and so is she. It was this veterinarian showing this crowd of people, I guess, maybe students. I love that story so much. Thank you, Dad. It's a beautiful story. My dad had a massive blind spot. Oh, my goodness. He was not a veterinarian, but everybody else looking in that crowd could look on and go, yeah, this guy's got a problem. This is going to be fun. And just watched him walk it out. We have blind spots. We have blind spots. And so my big question this morning is, do we live a life of generosity? Or are we living a life that is opposite to that, but it's a blind spot? 
Because the truth is, is, and this is what the Bible teaches, where money goes, the heart does follow. Greed sneaks up to us like a silent assassin, and it slowly decays the heart, which is why Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus said it. And it's interesting to me that he says, watch out with this particular sin, because he doesn't do with other kinds of sin. There are other sins that don't sneak up. We know exactly what we're doing. It would be a little bit like walking alongside a cliff edge and then somebody yelling, watch out, you might fall. I'm not, I'm fine. I'm just walking. I know there's a danger, but I'm just walking along it. But greed sneaks up on us. See, sins don't generally sneak up on us. We know what we're doing. We make calculated choices. It's bit by bit. We think about it, and then we do it, and it just gets bigger and bigger. It doesn't sneak up on us. It presents itself, and we invite it in. Greed sneaks up on us. It's insidious. Because it can start with, well, I'm just working hard. I'm just looking after my family. It's okay to be comfortable. And all those things are true. But like good idols, idols always start good and okay, and slowly develop to a point where it actually enslaves your life. See, greed and money has the power to affect our relationships in ways that nothing else can, no other sin. It affects our marriages, especially if there's a disconnect in how we should use our money. It affects families. Kids can't understand why we can't just keep on dishing out more and more money. It affects our friendships, especially when we start coveting. Coveting in Kelowna is massive. Because there's always somebody who drives something better than you. There's always somebody who's got more toys than you. There's always somebody. And so we're teaching our kids that, hey, this isn't just a rat race. We need to actually climb over the other rat to get to the end. It affects neighborhoods. It affects cities. It affects cultures. That is how insidious greed is. And can I just tell you, if you're sat there, and I say this lovingly, but again, I know that some of you are not coming back next week because of this, so I might as well just go for it. If you're sat there going, doesn't affect me, because I got nothing in my bank account. Actually, it has nothing to do with the amount of money that you have, because look what Jesus says, all kinds of greed. You can have a heart position towards greed and getting and gain, and have no money in your bank account. I could even argue that if you do have a position towards green, uh, greed and getting and gain, you probably don't have any money in your bank account. What's one of the first things our kids learn? Mine. Not yours, mine. And it's interesting because the, the uh, I want to say it again because it was such a cool word, Zogby Analytics said that it was the number one most urgent problem. And what's fascinating to me is I would totally agree, the number one most urgent problem when it comes to a heart position, biblically, right from the beginning of our, our belief in the scriptures, is greed. It was the first sin. I, I want more. So really what Jesus is saying is quite simple. He's saying, look, you, you, it's God or gain. You choose. You can't actually have both. No one can serve two masters, he said. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be, what? Devoted to the one and despise the other. There's no gray area here. Jesus is saying you either love it, you hate it. You devote, you despise. It's one or the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's what Jesus said. And we show that and see that in our culture all the time. 
Jesus said, money is God's main rival. There's room for only one in our heart. And we know this to be true. One of the richest people in the Bible, King David, said this, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither uh, poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. So David really was the first hashtag minimalist in the Bible, right? You know, way before the blogs and the Instagram posts. But he actually said, look, I, I just need enough. Otherwise, look what he said. I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? So the Bible's really clear. You, you serve one, you'll turn your back on the other. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Paul said. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many griefs. Please note, it's the love of money, not money. Money is an inanimate object. And this goes with so many different things in our lives. There's nothing wrong with Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or social media or or any of that. There's nothing wrong. They, They just are. But the love of it, that is where it becomes problematic. The love of money. And what happens if you love money? You will wander from the truth. You will wander from the faith. Because again, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. The interesting thing with this word money is it actually comes, it's an Aramaic word, and in some translations it capitalizes it and uses the word mammon because it's a Greek god. And what it literally means is it's bigger than money. Actually, you want to serve money or mammon, it's actually serving possessions, serving an attitude of wanting to get ahead, striving for success. That is mammon. So all that means is, is that Jesus is saying you cannot serve. In other words, Jesus says you cannot serve God and the Western culture of the good life. It's God or gain. You choose. So he's saying don't even try. Just don't. Just know that you can't do this. No one can what? Serve two masters. Really interesting to me the language that Jesus uses because he talks in slave and master language. We can see that. So the thing that we chase after ultimately will enslave us. And isn't that the true in most things? after your job, you chase after your family, you chase after that dream of your kid becoming the next Ronaldo, you chase after your dream, you chase, you chase, you chase, it ends up enslaving you because it becomes an idol. And so Jesus says, look, you can't have, you can't have two gods in your life because you end up serving one of them. So what masters, so this is where it gets practical is where it might get a little uncomfortable. Because I think we can all agree so far, if we can just get over the fact that church is always about money, because hopefully I've proven to you that as for this house, that is not the case. But as for this heart of a pastor, I feel constrained to speak about this. And I couldn't believe it when I looked at my plan that it landed on baptism Sunday. I actually said to Sarah this morning, I went, really? Baptism Sunday, Lord? And it's money? But can I say my pastor's heart is this, is that actually there's freedom in this message. Because the question has to be, my wonderful friend, 
what masters your thinking? What masters your life? What masters your decisions? What masters your goals? What masters your thoughts? Because if it is for gain or success or possessions or money or the good life, if that is mastering your thoughts, if your mind naturally wanders towards any of those when you are just quiet by yourself, if your passion is any of one of those, then ultimately Jesus says that it will sit on the throne of your heart and it will control you. It will master you. You cannot serve God and have anybody other than God on the throne of your heart. Can you see why this is the most loving and serious thing I can communicate? Because it's actually about what sits on the throne of your heart. Not about what money you put in the offering. It's about what sits there. What sits on the throne of your heart that we communicate to our kids. And trust me, you can have money. That's great. Please go and earn money and get money and become rich and wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that. There's lots of wealthy people in the Bible. And and I'm very, very grateful that we have wealthy people in this church who generously give. It's great. It's not about that, though. It's about whether or not you serve that which you are chasing or whether it is actually mastering you. Because at the end of the day, and we all know this, but it's all God's anyway. Look at some of these scriptures. All the earth is mine, Exodus 19, 5. So God was the first one that went mine, and he was actually qualified to say it. Who has, given, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole earth is mine. So... <laughs> You own nothing. It's just lent to you. It's a little bit like me lending my car to my 16-year-old and then him saying, hey, Dad, I've decided to let you use your car for a bit. Let me give your car back to you. Hang on. It's mine. What, what do you mean give, you, give my car back to me? It's mine in the first place. So when you're considering where to give your money, and, and it's like, actually, it's all his anyway. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And we're like, great, I don't have any silver and gold anyway. So you can have it all, God. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Again, I don't own any cattle, so this obviously doesn't include me. You understand the concept. God owns the earth. We are purely money managers. We're stewards, to use biblical language, that God has given us money so that we can steward it on behalf of him. See, it's a common thought in church world that we should give 10% to the church. That's a good thought. I could, I could give a very strong biblical argument for that. And give 10%, but here's the problem with that. It's not actually what the Bible teaches in the New Testament, because for some people, 10% is easy. For other people, 10% means you don't get to eat this week. Not just at the keg, but if you put a ticket in, you might be able to work at the keg. It's about It's about heart attitude, realizing it's all God's anyway. I love this scripture. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. 
It's you, the, the air in your lungs, the sight in your eyes, the computer you turned on, that God in his wisdom allowed you to, to be born in a time such as this. It's all his. And here's the beautiful thing, and this is what I love about the Bible. He wants you to enjoy it. Look at this. <laughs> I heard that, amen. Ecclesiastes 9.7, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for it is now that God favors what you do. Eat good steak, drink good wine, enjoy what I have given you. But remember, it was God who gave it us. So here's a good question to ask. What masters my heart, but also what do you want me to do with your money, God? What do you want me to do with your money? Because if I'm a steward, then all I'm doing is directing the money where you want me to take it. See, the Bible is all about not how much we give, but how much we should keep. How much should we give compared to how much we keep? You see, the New Testament writing, the New Testament teaching is we should give regularly, we should give cheerfully, and we should give sacrificially. Because that keeps our hearts in a place where money does not master us. Did you hear that? If you give sacrificially and cheerfully and regularly, money will never master your heart. And that is a powerful and very freeing place to be. See, in Genesis 12, God blessed Abraham and said, I will bless you. And then he goes on to say, and all the peoples will be blessed through you. So God blesses us so we can be a blessing. And then the amazing thing is the sentence can continue because as we are a blessing, it actually blesses us. It's freeing to actually look at money as a thing that goes through us, not terminate upon us. Because if we live generously, you will be enriched in every way. So that, you can, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So everything that you own belongs to God, but everything that we own also is there to bring thanksgiving to God. So I have my job, my car, my house, and all those wonderful possessions. They're God's, but they are given to me so I can steward them well, but also so I can continually point to Jesus as to why I have them in the first place. And it's a very, very powerful place to be because money doesn't keep a hold on me. Possession shouldn't keep a hold on me. The gain shouldn't keep, the success shouldn't. The the good life doesn't keep a hold on me if my hold, my master, is actually Jesus and God. It is freeing. You see, giving sacrificially is a continual physical action that reminds us of God's control and love. I use this illustration all the time, but if we keep an open hand, on all that God has given us, it won't master us. It's only when we do a closed fist and say, God, you can have anything but this. That's when it masters us. And that's where often misery lies. You see, in the scripture that I read right at the beginning, Paul talks about us excelling in our grace-filled giving. We're going to be baptizing three wonderful people in, in just a minute and And I'm really, you know, we jokingly say, Phil and I, this is like pastor's payday. Because this is the most wonderful thing that you can, I I remember all the people that I have baptized over from 30 years of ministry. It's wonderful. It's so good. But the baptism is just a symbol. It's a symbol of something that happens in our hearts. 
And so what happens is when we come and we, we place ourselves before a living God and we recognize that everything that's going on in our world cannot be fixed by my own gain, my own mammon, my own ability. That life slams into us so hard sometimes it takes our breath away and leaves us to the point where actually we have nothing other than to cry out to God. If that hasn't happened to you yet, there is an excellent chance that is going to happen to you at some point in your life. As Tim Keller, and I'm going to be very, I'm going to paraphrase this badly, but when you realize that the only thing you have is Jesus, you realize the only thing you need is Jesus. And some of you have gone through situations in your families and in your health and in your businesses and in your circumstances that you actually didn't know whether you were going to survive, that you couldn't get through a sentence without breaking down and crying. Because that is a reminder that actually we're finite in our ability to be able to bring health and healing and fixing to our own lives. And until we get to the place when we realize that as often as a result of us placing something else on the throne of our lives, believing that will be our savior. See, we put mammon as our savior. We put possessions as our savior. We put our family as our savior. That if my family is okay, then my life is going to be okay. If my possessions are in place, then I'm going to be okay. If my TFSA is really squishy filled, I'm going to be okay. The reality is that when your kids stray or something happens or your bank balance goes to nothing or if your health reminds you that actually you're not in complete control, then where is your savior then? Which is why Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You can only serve one. You can only have one thing on the throne of your heart. And the people who are going through baptism are declaring that actually we have God on the throne of our hearts. Because when life reminds us that we're very, very small, then we know that we have a very, very big God in control. Does that mean that we skip through life like it's a meadow full of daisies? No. But can I tell you, as you walk through that meadow, like we've sung, it might feel like a valley. But we know that we have hope. That's called the kingdom of God. That we can actually live out some of this heaven on earth. And while we're fighting to make ourselves our savior, you won't be able to forgive yourself. You won't be able to release yourself from the shame and guilt that you might feel from the past. You won't be able to fix anything that's going on, and all it is is a cycle. That when you're feeling good, you feel like you might get through this. When you're feeling bad, it feels like life is imploding on you, whereas Jesus steps into the mix and goes, listen, there's freedom to be found from this. And we would sum it up as the gospel. And as I said last week, that you can actually live on earth as it is in heaven, That we can actually experience some of the promises that Jesus said were coming in eternity. We can experience them now. But it starts with a very simple act, which is what this baptism represents. That I am going to die. Not literally. Everybody calm down. They will come out of the waters. Although we were joking in the hub earlier on because I've only ever lost two people. They were really big. And Tyler, the six foot six. Where are you, Tyler? I've still got to figure it out, mate. I... We'll, we'll, we'll get there. I lost Nick Schrick. Remember Nick? He was a big dude. Like I put him down. It was like, okay. <laughs> I hope this kid can figure it out. because. And then the other one was my good friend Chris Armstrong. I baptized him in the river in Bala, which is in North Wales. 
and it was just rushing this river, and he's a big guy. Sorry, Chris, you are. And uh, down and gone. We were both going down. <laughs> we were both going down this river. He was saving me. It was beautiful. It was, there's pictures on the net if you want to see them. It's great. But the waters represent you going into the water. This is representing of Jesus dying on the cross. That's literally what it means, is that you go under the water as representative of you going into the grave. What does that mean? It means that my old life is now dead. My own way of thinking, my old paradigms, my old worldview is now dead. Because I have submitted to Jesus. I've cried out for forgiveness. He is my God. He is my Lord. He sits on the throne of my life. And then when, praise the Lord, I will bring them out of the water, that's representative of Jesus rising again in newness of life. Because Jesus beat the snot out of death on the cross, proving everything that he said was true. And in a few weeks' time, we're actually going to talk about some, yeah, but how do we know he really rose from the dead? Come back in a few weeks. The What About series, we're going to look at some of these big questions. This is why baptism is so powerful, because it's declaring that he is sat on the throne of my life, not mammon, nothing else. And as I said, if we love Jesus more than anything else, that is the best way that we can serve our city, our community, and our kids, and our world. Because what it does is it results in a generous lifestyle. We can excel in generosity because Jesus was so generous to us. The most loving thing you can do for your neighbor is to be in love with Jesus, to put him first, because it will cause you and you will desire to live life generously because great generosity has been shown to you. It's so powerful. The only answer our city has, our culture, our world has, is to remove whatever is on the throne of our hearts and replace them with the one who is truly qualified to say, come follow me. Not some Instagram influencer. Come follow Jesus. That's what this church is about. Which is why I was actually quite happy to talk about money on the day of baptism. Because it ain't about money, it's about the heart. Now, if the Lord leads you to give a great deal of money to this church, then that's up to him. Praise the Lord. But if we as a church could live life generously, we could actually change the way this city looks. Not just with money, but the way that we share our lives generously to one another. Amen? So I really hope that you do come back if you are new. Because it kind of shows that this is what we're about. We're about Jesus. Baptism is about Jesus. And I look at the young people on the, on the stage that it's actually generation to generation. We're about Jesus. I don't want to distract anymore from what we're about to do. I want to pray. This is what's going to happen is that our three, um, you know, the, uh, we're, we're a Mennonite church. I might not sound or look very Mennonite, but the Mennonites in traditionally have been called dunkers because we like to dunk people. Um, and so we were saying our three people who are going to get lovingly dunked today are doing so because they've placed Jesus on the throne of their hearts, and that's so good. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going uh, to pray, and that is the cue for our baptizees to go and get changed, and they're going to come back in. We're going to sing one more song, and then we're going to hear from them, really. They've got a couple of minute testimonies. We're going to hear some of their story. And, uh, and then we will baptize all three of them, not together, um, one at a time. 
And then we, can I, can I encourage you that when they get plants, let's give them a, a roaring round of applause when they come out of work. This is a powerful moment in their lives. They are publicly declaring that Jesus is first. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word is life-changing, it's powerful, it's significant. And Lord, yeah, we recognize that sometimes it might make us feel uncomfortable. But Lord, I think we would all agree that we don't want to serve a God that just agrees with us all the time. But Lord, we actually want to be stretched. We want to be made to think. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus more than anything that, Lord, as we consider and as we sing and as we watch these baptisms, that, Lord, we would ask the question, what masters our life? Who sits on the throne of our life? Jesus, thank you that you gave your life. And by doing so, beating every God and everything, Lord, that holds us down in this life. Thank you, Jesus, for your generosity towards us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a generous-hearted people. Generous with our homes, our possessions, our money, our lives, in every aspect, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord, but your word. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would speak powerfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. Um, so we've been, uh, last couple of weeks, I've been talking about uh, various subjects. Last week, we talked about the power of community and how we're meant to be uh, together and not isolated. My role as a pastor is really, really clear. It's to help and support you in your journey towards becoming more like Jesus. And I, I do my very best to lift Jesus up. We're a Jesus-centered church. And uh, I, I do my best to lift him up every week. I also do my best, sometimes literally yelling, watch out. Just be careful of this aspect of life because this can sneak up behind you and it can just pull you down. Whenever I, sh- whenever I uh, research and prepare, I always think the so what. This is great information, so what? What's the, what's the point? If I was a teenager sat listening to this message How is this going to impact my life? If I'm a single mom or a single dad or if I'm somebody who is retired, what is the impact of this message? Well, today I'm going to share a message that really I'm going to be given a bit of a Clint Eastwood squinty stare down on something that is so powerful, it could actually cause some of you never to come back to this church. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stare it down. And I do with some kind of trepidation because as I lift Jesus up and I yell, watch out, and I stare down this thing that is so powerful, this alluring false God that gives an illusion of divine power to each of us, that this, this idea that we can, this God gives us a, a, the thought that we can control this world and conform it to our will, a false God that seeks to manipulate us to the nth degree that would seek to isolate us from others. And this false God is so appealing, an alternative trusting to God that it's just trust in me, you don't need anything else. It's really a watch out sermon. 
outside of idolatry, this is the number one most talked about subject in the whole of the Bible, even more than faith and prayer combined. This subject destroys families, destroys marriages, destroys lives. It destroys communities, cities, countries, and whole cultures. And it can be seen all the way through our history. I'm going to talk to you about parenting Gen Zs. No, I'm not. I'm joking. I'm not. And yet, the second I tell you what this subject is, I've built it up. There's going to be an inner eye roll. You may even have an actual eye roll, so please keep an eye on the person next to you. But a lot of you are going to have an inner eye roll. That's how clever and insidious this enemy is. Because it's literally like we've been convinced that it's okay. But it's a little bit like having breakfast with Satan, thinking that he's your best friend. It's clever. So I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, the greatest teacher that has ever walked this planet. Historians and atheists would agree. The one person who really has changed the trajectory of our history. I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with this man, Jesus, as we together point out this God that seeks to destroy you. And together, him and I are going to say, watch out. Watch out. Here's my title. You ready? Yes, my friends, we're going to talk about money. Oh, so some disclaimers. Yes, this is uncomfortable. This is uncomfortable. Church has an unfortunate reputation to be made uh, to be about money. Right now, I am quite convinced on some TV channels somewhere in America, especially, is some probably quite squat, bald, overweight, nothing wrong with that person dripping with sweat, saying, if you send me $50, I'm going to wipe my brow, and you can have this handkerchief, and it's going to change your life. That's foul, unbiblical, evil teaching. But it has a reputation in the church over thousands of years. It's uncomfortable because some of you may be thinking that's what church is about. Some of you have invited your friends for months to come to church, and this is the day they said yes, and the pastor's talking about money. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Yes, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> this is the first time I have preached about money since November the 17th, 2017. Four years ago. Four years ago. I can stand on that kind of credibility, knowing that this church is not about money. I don't want this. You don't want this. So why don't we just avoid it? Well, the reality is, is that I've made a commitment to teach the Bible. And I've not made a commitment to woo people into church. Sorry if you did invite your friend. (laughs) I I haven't made a commitment just to fill a room. I made a commitment to be faithful to the scriptures because I truly believe that this divine Uh, library called the Bible does change lives. I can't avoid it. But let me promise you this. I am not seeking to manipulate you. We're not going to send a bag around halfway through because, frankly, we're not allowed in COVID anyway. I'm not going to do that. My commitment, and please listen to to me, is not some kind of divine drive-by guilting. My desire is that we as a church would be a generous church. Generosity is my goal. 
Generosity is my goal. My outcome is less about you and your offering and more about the power of money over our hearts. Second disclaimer, you are very, very generous. And (laughs) you are very, very generous. There are people sat in this room and across the church network that continually just humble me by their generosity over the work of this church over the years. If you're not sure about the work of this church, you need to stick around a bit and you need to listen to some of the announcements. You need to look at the website and you'll see how we have sought diligently to, see, to serve our community, our city, our country and our world. And that is made possible by people's generosity. There are some people who give sacrificially and generously every month and then even more. There are some people who do not, but still come to this church on a regular basis. And it's not my job to manipulate you into feeling guilty to give more because the Bible says that we ought to be cheerfully, sacrificially, and generously giving on a regular basis. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do that, not my job. And like I said last week, I came this massive revelation a few weeks ago that I'm not God and I can't change hearts or minds. But what I can do is preach what the Bible says. So if it makes you feel uncomfortable, it makes me feel uncomfortable, then, then why, am I, why am I doing this? <laughs> Why, why am I doing it? Well, disclaimer number three, our culture sends messages about money all the time. All the time. And actually, it would be remiss of me, sinful of me, to avoid this subject because it makes me feel bad and you feel bad when our whole culture is speaking about it all the time. We talk about difficult subjects in this church. This is a difficult one. And yet... It's even though the the culture speaks about money all the time, so does the Bible. I've already said it speaks about it over 2,000 times in the whole of the canon of Scripture. It's the second most talked about theme in the Bible after idols, more than prayer and faith combined. Jesus talked about money more than any other subject outside of the kingdom of God. More than heaven and hell combined, Jesus spoke about money. Why? 25% of his teaching was on money. Just imagine for a second if you knew once a month that I was going to talk about giving. I wonder whether we'd have the, we've put extra chairs out this morning. I wonder whether we would need to do that on that Sunday. Praise the Lord. So why does the Bible highlight money so much? It's really simple. Money is about much more than money. Money is about much more than money. Jesus said it's more blessed, which means happy, to give than to receive. And so right from the outset, I can with total confidence say you will be happier if you live a life of generosity. Generous people, social science research shows us that Jesus is in fact correct because generous people are happier, healthier, live longer, and nicer to be around than greedy people. That is not a shock to any of us if you are generous. See, again, this is my aim. My aim is not to see the offering of this church increase, although that would be great because you are generous and we want to do more. We do want to do more in our church and we do want to encourage people to give. But at the end of the day, I know by teaching on this that it actually will lead to you feeling freer and more joy in your life than if you lived a life of greediness. The empirical evidence of social science says categorically that more money means more happiness is actually fake news. Some of you are thinking, I'd like to test that empirical evidence. 
And the interesting thing about money and greed and generosity is we know it's a problem. Zogby, what a great name, Analytics, had a large benchmark poll in which they asked the respondents to, uh, and, and various questions, and they identified greed and materialism was the number one, quote, most urgent problem in our culture. Poverty and economic justice were second. So the number one problem that the respondents said in our culture was greed and materialism. We know it's a problem, but we know it's a problem for other people, not for me. Is that not true? Other people are greedy and materialistic and want more money, but not me, because there's always somebody richer to throw a stone at. There's always somebody richer to go, yeah, but at least I'm not like them. The BBC conducted a poll on the seven deadly sins, anger, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, and sloth. Which sin, they asked, have you committed in the last month? Plenty of British people, that's me, cop to being lazy, proud, I'm so proud to be British right now, lazy, proud, envious, and angry. Guess what the number seventh sin was? Greed. Tim Keller said this, even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. Greed hides itself from the victim beautifully. We have a blind spot. We have lots of blind spots. We live with blind spots. And what I mean by that, we have parts of our our world that we just don't see. Other people might be able to see it, but we just don't see it. My dad, who may be here, I'm not sure. Dad, are you here? There he is. Uh, I see that hand. That's one. Praise the Lord. My dad was, uh, was a police chief for many years before becoming a pastor. He retired and then became a pastor, which is, which is brilliant. But one of my favorite stories, and he has many, many stories about when he was a police officer. I believe at the time he was ranked around a sergeant. And it was his job to show this other police officer around the patch, the area that he was policing at that time. So you're probably talking about in the early 80s, something like that. And, uh, and so he was driving around, and in the area that we lived, there was lots of back roads and lots of farm areas, as well as it being very urban. It quickly kind of spilled over into farmland. And so my dad was showing this police officer around, and they came, and those of you who have ever driven around Britain, especially in more rural Britain, the roads get really, really narrow. If you think the roads in Canada get narrow, you need to go to Britain where literally sometimes your wing mirrors are brushing the hedgerows, and if you meet somebody head on, you actually have to reverse, I'm not joking, 100, 200, 300 meters to find a divot in the fence to reverse into so somebody can pass you. Usually a farmer in a Land Rover going way too fast with an elbow sticking out like this, flat cap, like this. So he's, my dad is driving through these narrow roads, and he comes upon a group of people right in the middle of the road. So dad parks, and he says this, not me. Okay, My dad had a moment of, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to see what this is all about. This is him talking. He was like, I was a little bit prideful at that moment. Wanted to show this new police officer that I knew how to take control of a situation. So he gets out of the police car and he walks and the other uh, police officer is following after him. Dad puts his cap on and he walks and he pushes his way through this crowd. And there's like eight or nine, ten people around this cow in the middle of the road. 
lying on its side. My dad takes off his cap, hands it to the other police officer, hold this. He kneels down beside the cow, puts his head on its chest to see if it could fe hear a heartbeat or feel a heartbeat. Puts his hand in front of the cow's snout. That's nose for those of you who don't know anything about cows. <laughs> to feel its breath. It looks for a pulse. He looks for a pulse. All the while, this crowd of people are just watching him, including the brand new police officer. So my dad is kind of is down there, and he's doing this for a number of times. He's poking and prodding and listening and feeling. And, and, and then eventually he stands up and gets his cap off the police officer. And then he looks at the crowd and goes, it's dead. <laughs> and then the gentleman in the crowd goes, yeah, I know. I'm a veterinarian. And so is he, and so is she, and so is he, and so is she. It was this veterinarian showing this crowd of people, I guess, maybe students. I love that story so much. Thank you, Dad. It's a beautiful story. My dad had a massive blind spot. Oh, my goodness. He was not a veterinarian, but everybody else looking in that crowd could look on and go, yeah, this guy's got a problem. This is going to be fun, and just watched him walk it out. We have blind spots. We have blind spots. And so my big question this morning is, do we live a life of generosity? Or are we living a life that is opposite to that? But it's a blind spot. Because the truth is, is and this is what the Bible teaches, where money goes, the heart does follow. Greed sneaks up to us like a silent assassin, and it slowly decays the heart. Which is why Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard. Against all kinds of greed, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus said it. And it's interesting to me that he says, watch out with this particular sin, because he doesn't do it with other kinds of sin. There are other sins that don't sneak up. We know exactly what we're doing. It would be a little bit like walking alongside a cliff edge and then somebody yelling, watch out, you might fall. I'm not, I'm fine. I'm just walking. And I know there's a danger, but I'm just walking along it. But greed sneaks up on us. See, sins don't generally sneak up on us. We know what we're doing. We make calculated choices. It's bit by bit. We think about it and then we do it and it just gets bigger and bigger. It doesn't sneak up on us. It presents itself and we invite it in. Greed sneaks up on us. It's insidious. Because it can start with, well, I'm just working hard. I'm just looking after my family. It's okay to be comfortable. And all those things are true. But like good idols, idols always start good and okay and slowly develop to a point where it actually enslaves your life. See, greed and money has the power to affect our relationships in ways that nothing else can. No other sin. It affects our marriages, especially if there's a disconnect in how we should use our money. It affects families. Kids can't understand why we can't just keep on dishing out more and more money. It affects our friendships, especially when we start coveting. Coveting in Kelowna is massive. Because there's always somebody who drives something better than you. There's always somebody who's got more toys than you. There's always something, and so we're teaching our kids that, hey, this isn't just a rat race. We need to actually climb over the other rat to get to the end. It affects neighborhoods. It affects cities. It affects cultures. That is how insidious greed is. And can I just tell you, if you're sat there, and I say this lovingly, but again, I know that some of you are not coming back next week because of this, so I might as well just go for it. 
If you're sat there going, doesn't affect me, because I got nothing in my bank account. Actually, it has nothing to do with the amount of money that you have, because look what Jesus says, all kinds of greed. You can have a heart position towards greed and getting and gain, and have no money in your bank account. I could even argue that if you do have a position towards green, uh, greed and getting and gain, you probably don't have any money in your bank account. What's one of the first things our kids learn? Mine. Not yours. Mine. And it's interesting because the, the uh, I want to say it again because it was such a cool word, Zogby analyt- Analytics said that it was the number one most urgent problem. And what's fascinating to me is I would totally agree, the number one most urgent problem when it comes to a heart position, biblically, right from the beginning of our, our belief in the scriptures, is greed. It was the first sin. I, I want more. So really what Jesus is saying is quite simple. He's saying, look, you, you, it's God or gain. You choose. You can't actually have both. No one can serve two masters, he said. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be, what? Devoted to the one and despise the other. There's no gray area here. Jesus is saying you either love it, you hate it. You devote, you despise. It's one or the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's what Jesus said. And we show that and see that in our culture all the time. Jesus said money is God's main rival. There's room for only one in our hearts. And we know this to be true. One of the richest people in the Bible, King David, said this, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither rich, uh, poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. So David really was the first hashtag minimalist in the Bible, right? You know, way before the blogs and the Instagram posts. That, but he actually said, look, I, I just need enough. Otherwise, look what he said. I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? So the Bible's really clear. You, you serve one, you'll turn your back on the other. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Paul said. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many griefs. Please note, it's the love of money, not money. Money is an inanimate object. And this goes with so many different things in our lives. There's nothing wrong with Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or social media or or any of that. There's nothing wrong. They, They just are. But the love of it, that is where it becomes problematic. The love of money. And what happens if you love money? You will wonder from the truth. You will wonder from the faith. Because again, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. The interesting thing with this word money is it actually comes, it's an Aramaic word, and in some translations it capitalizes it and uses the word mammon because it's a Greek god. And what it literally means is it's bigger than money. Actually, you want to serve money or mammon, it's actually serving possessions, serving an attitude of wanting to get ahead, striving for success. That is mammon. So all that means is, is that Jesus is saying you cannot serve. In other words, Jesus says you cannot serve God and the Western culture of the good life. It's God or gain. You choose. So he's saying don't even try. 
Just don't. Just know that you can't do this. No one can what? Serve two masters. Really interesting to me the language that Jesus uses because he talks in slave and master language. We can see that. So the thing that we chase after ultimately will enslave us. And isn't that the true in most things? after your job, you chase after your family, you chase after that dream of your kid becoming the next Ronaldo, you chase after your dream, you chase, you chase, you chase, it ends up enslaving you because it becomes an idol. And so Jesus says, look, you can't have, you can't have two gods in your life because you end up serving one of them. So what masters, so this is where it gets practical where it might get a little uncomfortable because I think we can all agree so far if we can just get over the fact that church is always about money because hopefully I've proven to you that as for this house that is not the case but as for this heart of a pastor I feel constrained to speak about this and I couldn't believe it when I looked at my plan that it landed on baptism Sunday I actually said to Sarah this morning I went really baptism Sunday Lord and it's money But can I say my pastor's heart is this, is that actually there's freedom in this message. Because the question has to be, my wonderful friend, what masters your thinking? What masters your life? What masters your decisions? What masters your goals? What masters your thoughts? Because if it is for gain or success or possessions or money or the good life, if that is mastering your thoughts, if your mind naturally wanders towards any of those when you are just quiet by yourself, if your passion is any of one of those, then ultimately Jesus says that it will sit on the throne of your heart and it will control you. It will master you. You cannot serve God and have anybody other than God on the throne of your heart. Can you see why this is the most loving and serious thing I can communicate? Because it's actually about what sits on the throne of your heart. Not about what money you put in the offering. It's about what sits there. What sits on the throne of your heart that we communicate to our kids. And trust me, you can have money. That's great. Please go and earn money and get money and become rich and wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that. There's lots of wealthy people in the Bible, and and I'm very, very grateful that we have wealthy people in this church who generously give. It's great. It's not about that, though. It's about whether or not you serve that which you are chasing or whether it is actually mastering you. Because at the end of the day, and we all know this, but it's all God's anyway. Look at some of these scriptures. All the earth is mine, Exodus 19, So God was the first one that went, mine, and he was actually qualified to say it. Who who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole earth is mine. So (laughs) you own nothing. It's just lent to you. It's a little bit like me lending my car to my 16-year-old and then him saying, hey, Dad, I've decided to let you use your car for a bit. Let me give your car back to you. Hang on. It's mine. What do you mean give, you, give my car back to me? 
It's mine in the first place. So when you're considering where to give your money, and, and it's like, actually, it's all his anyway. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And we're like, great, I don't have any silver and gold anyway. So you can have it all, God. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Again, I don't own any cattle, so this obviously doesn't include me. You, you understand the concept. God owns the earth. We are purely money managers. We're stewards, to use biblical language, that God has given us money so that we can steward it on behalf of him. See, it's a common thought in church world that we should give 10% to the church. That's a good thought. I could, I could give a very strong biblical argument for that. And give 10%, but here's the problem with that. It's not actually what the Bible teaches in the New Testament, because for some people, 10% is easy. For other people, 10% means you don't get to eat this week. And not just at the keg, but if you put a ticket in, you might be able to work at the keg. It's about, it's about heart attitude, realizing it's all God's anyway. I love this scripture. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. It's you, the, the air in your lungs, the sight in your eyes, the computer you turned on, that God in his wisdom allowed you to, to be born in a time such as this. It's all his and here's the beautiful thing, and this is what I love about the Bible. He wants you to enjoy it. Look at this. <laughs> I heard that, amen. Ecclesiastes 9.7, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Eat good steak, drink good wine, enjoy what I have given you. But remember, it was God who gave it us. So here's a good question to ask. What masters my heart, but also... What do you want me to do with your money, God? What do you want me to do with your money? Because if I'm a steward, then all I'm doing is directing the money where you want me to take it. See, the Bible is all about not how much we give, but how much we should keep. How much should we give compared to how much we keep? You see, the New Testament writing, the New Testament teaching is we should give regularly, we should give cheerfully, and we should give sacrificially. Because that keeps our hearts in a place where money does not master us. Did you hear that? If you give sacrificially and cheerfully and regularly, money will never master your heart. And that is a powerful and very freeing place to be. See, in Genesis 12, God blessed Abraham and said, I will bless you. And then he goes on to say, and all the peoples will be blessed through you. So God blesses us so we can be a blessing. And then the amazing thing is the sentence can continue because as we are a blessing, it actually blesses us. It's freeing to actually look at money as a thing that goes through us, not terminate upon us. Because if we live generously, you will be enriched in every way so that, you can, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So everything that you own belongs to God, but everything that we own also is there to bring thanksgiving to God. So I have my job, my car, my house, 
and all those wonderful possessions. They're God's, but they are given to me so I can steward them well, but also so I can continually point to Jesus as to why I have them in the first place. And it's a very, very powerful place to be because money doesn't keep a hold on me. Possession shouldn't keep a hold on me. The gain shouldn't keep, the success shouldn't. The, the good life doesn't keep a hold on me if my hold, my master, is actually Jesus and God. It is freeing. You see, giving sacrificially is a continual physical action that reminds us of God's control and love. I use this illustration all the time, but if we keep an open hand on all that God has given us, it won't master us. It's only when we do a closed fist and say, God, you can have anything but this. That's when it masters us. And that's where often misery lies. You see, in the scripture that I read right at the beginning, Paul talks about us excelling in our grace-filled giving. We're going to be baptizing three wonderful people in, in just a minute and And I'm really, you know, we jokingly say, Phil and I, this is like pastor's payday. Because this is the most wonderful thing that you can, I I remember all the people that I have baptized over some 30 years of ministry. It's wonderful. It's so good. But the baptism is just a symbol. It's a symbol of something that happens in our hearts. And so what happens is when we come and we, we place ourselves before a living God and we recognize that everything that's going on in our world cannot be fixed by my own gain, my own mammon, my own abilities. That life slams into us so hard sometimes it takes our breath away and leaves us to the point where actually we have nothing other than to cry out to God. If that hasn't happened to you yet, there is an excellent chance that is going to happen to you at some point in your life. As Tim Keller, and I'm going to be very, I'm going to paraphrase this badly, but when you realize that the only thing you have is Jesus, you realize the only thing you need is Jesus. And some of you have gone through situations in your families and in your health and in your businesses and in your circumstances that you actually didn't know whether you were going to survive, that you couldn't get through a sentence without breaking down and crying. Because that is a reminder that actually we're finite in our ability to be able to bring health and healing and fixing to our own lives. And until we get to the place when we realize that as often as a result of us placing something else on the throne of our lives, believing that will be our savior. See, we put mammon as our savior. We put possessions as our savior. We put our family as our savior. That if my family is okay, then my life is going to be okay. If my possessions are in place, then I'm going to be okay. If my TFSA is really squishy filled, I'm going to be okay. The reality is that when your kids stray or something happens or your bank balance goes to nothing or if your health reminds you that actually you're not in complete control, then where is your savior then? Which is why Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You can only serve one. You can only have one thing on the throne of your heart. And the people who are going through baptism are declaring that actually we have God on the throne of our hearts. Because when life reminds us that we're very, very small, then we know that we have a very, very big God in control. Does that mean that we skip through life like it's a meadow full of daisies? No. But can I tell you, as you walk through that meadow, like we've sung, it might feel like a valley. But we know that we have hope. That's called the kingdom of God. 
that we can actually live out some of this heaven on earth. And while we're fighting to make ourselves our savior, you won't be able to forgive yourself. You won't be able to release yourself from the shame and guilt that you might feel from the past. You won't be able to fix anything that's going on. And all it is is a cycle. But when you're feeling good, you feel like you might get through this. When you're feeling bad, it feels like life is imploding on you. Whereas Jesus steps into the midst and goes, listen, there's freedom to be found from this. And we would sum it up as the gospel. And as I said last week, that you can actually live on earth as it is in heaven. That we can actually experience some of the promises that Jesus said were coming in eternity. We can experience them now. But it starts with a very simple act, which is what this baptism represents. That I am going to die. Not literally, everybody calm down. They will come out of the waters. Although we were joking in the hub earlier on because I've only ever lost two people. They were really big. And Tyler is six foot six. Where are you, Tyler? I've still got to figure it out, mate. I, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. I lost Nick Schrick. Remember Nick? He was a big dude. Like I put him down. It was like, okay. <laughs> I hope this kid can figure it out. because. And then the other one was my good friend, Chris Armstrong. I baptized him in the river in Bala, which is in North Wales. And it was just rushing this river. And he's a big guy. Sorry, Chris, you are. And uh, down and gone. We were both going down. <laughs> we were both going down this river. He was saving me. It was beautiful. It was, there's pictures on the net if you want to see them. It's great. But the waters represent you going into the water. This is representing of Jesus dying on the cross. That's literally what it means, is that you go under the water as representative of you going into the grave. What does that mean? It means that my old life is now dead. My own way of thinking, my old paradigms, my old worldview is now dead. Because I have submitted to Jesus. I've cried out for forgiveness. He is my God. He is my Lord. He sits on the throne of my life. And then when, praise the Lord, I will bring them out of the water, that's representative of Jesus rising again in newness of life. Because Jesus beat the snot out of death on the cross, proving everything that he said was true. And in a few weeks' time, we're actually going to talk about some of the air, but how do we know he really rose from the dead? Come back in a few weeks. The What About series, we're going to look at some of these big questions. This is why baptism is so powerful, because it's declaring that he is sat on the throne of my life, not mammon, nothing else. And as I said, if we love Jesus more than anything else, that is the best way that we can serve our city, our community, and our kids, and our world. Because what it does is it results in a generous lifestyle. We can excel in generosity because Jesus was so generous to us. The most loving thing you can do for your neighbor is to be in love with Jesus, to put him first. Because it will cause you and you will desire to live life generously because great generosity has been shown to you. It's so powerful. The only answer our city has, our culture, our world has, is to remove whatever is on the throne of our hearts and replace them with the one who is truly qualified to say, come follow me. Not some Instagram influencer. Come follow Jesus. That's what this church is about. Which is why I was actually quite happy to talk about money on the day of baptism. Because it ain't about money, it's about the heart. Now, if the Lord leads you to give a great deal of money to this church, then that's up to him. Praise the Lord. 
But if we as a church could live life generously, we could actually change the way the city looks, not just with money, but the way that we share our lives generously to one another. Amen? So I really hope that you do come back if you are new, because it kind of shows that this is what we're about. We're about Jesus. Baptism is about Jesus. And I look at the young people on the, on the stage that it's actually generation to generation. We're about Jesus. I don't want to distract anymore from what we're about to do. I want to pray. This is what's going to happen is that our three, um, you know, the, uh, we're, we're a Mennonite church. I might not sound or look very Mennonite, but the Mennonites in traditionally have been called dunkers because we like to dunk people. Um, and so we were saying our three people who are going to get lovingly dunked today are doing so because they've placed Jesus on the throne of their hearts, and that's so good. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going uh, to pray, and that is the cue for our baptizees to go and get changed, and they're going to come back in. We're going to sing one more song, and then we're going to hear from them, really. They've got a couple of minute testimonies. We're going to hear some of their story. And, uh, and then we will baptize all three of them, not together, um, one at a time. And then we, can I, can I encourage you that when they get baptized, let's give them a, a roaring round of applause when they come out of the This is a powerful moment in their lives. They are publicly declaring that Jesus is first. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word is life-changing, is powerful, is significant. And Lord, yeah, we recognize that sometimes it might make us feel uncomfortable. But Lord, I think we would all agree that we don't want to serve a God that just agrees with us all the time. But Lord, we actually want to be stretched. We want to be made to think. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus more than anything that, Lord, as we consider and as we sing and as we watch these baptisms, that, Lord, we would ask the question, what masters our life? Who sits on the throne of our life? Jesus, thank you that you gave your life. And by doing so, beating every God and everything, Lord, that holds us down in this life. Thank you, Jesus, for your generosity towards us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a generous-hearted people. Generous with our homes, our possessions, our money, our lives, in every aspect, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please take your seats. Got changed almost as quickly as my son on that video. <laughs> Little out of breath, got to admit. Okay. Right, so, Zani, do you want to come first or would you like to go last? Okay, I don't blame you. We'll go Tyler. I can't see Tyler. Tyler, come and uh, share some of your story, and then we'll do Allison and Zani, and we'll, we'll do all together. Let's give Tyler a big round of applause. All right, I just hold it here? Oh, sweet, right on. Okay, this works. All right, uh, I just want to pray real quick. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the place that you've taken me to, uh, the place you've taken me from. And Lord, I just please that whatever you do today, um, that whatever you want to do, that you would just do it. 
And I thank you that you will. Amen. Okay, so um, I was trying to figure out how to put like my whole story into five minutes. And I was like, God, how do I do this? I don't know. Um, but thankfully, Glenn kind of just did it over the last half hour. Um, everything he talked about, everything he talked about with the idolatry, everything he talked about with um, the pitfalls that can happen when we put something other than God on the throne of our heart um, was pretty much my whole story. Um, but then, I don't know. I guess I'll, I'll tell you guys a story of how we got there. Um, but first, I'll tell you this. Uh, when I was about eight years old, um, this is probably my strongest early memory. Uh, I was just in bed, lying in bed, just praying. And I was, it's with only like the exuberance that an eight-year-old can pray, I was just like, God, you are my God. You are my God. You are my God. You are my God. Over and over and over. I was just saying that, saying that. And then the craziest thing happened. I heard God's audible voice, and he said to me two words, am I? And that was it. And I was like, what do you mean? Of course you are. Like, I've been praying that. I, ju I told you that. And he just left it. And I just sat bolt upright in bed because, I mean, you hear the audible voice of God. You're like, what the heck just happened? And I heard those two words, and I just kind of dismissed it. I forgot about it because I didn't understand what it meant. But he perfectly summed up the next 20 years of my life. And it is just crazy because he, he nailed it. Like, I just put something other than him over and over and over again, like Glenn says, on the throne of my heart. And there were so many things. And one by one by one, they just got knocked off. Just one by one by one. And every time it hurt. But there was always something new to go to. And so I would, like good relationship with your dad, gone. Get into med school, gone. Play pro basketball, gone. All these things, find the right girl, gone. All this stuff, all of it just gone. Right career, gone. Money, gone. And eventually he took me to this place where I had absolutely nothing left. And so I was just done. And I remember, I remember praying and he finally knocked off two at the same time. And this was about seven, eight months ago. And I, I was just devastated. I was just done. I was like, God, this is over. I'm so finished. My friend Randall back there gave me this little hope rock. And I took it from the balcony and chucked it in the pond because I was so upset. It was like this this movie moment. It was super dramatic. But it, it just was what it was. And I remember staying up all night just crying my eyes out. And the next day I was in the gym and I was I was toast. And I finished my workout, and I walk into the bathroom. I remember praying this, and I meant it. I won't curse in church, but what I said was, God, you're about to effing lose me. And I meant it. I meant it with all of my heart. <laughs> I took my phone. I threw it on the counter. And there's this text message on it. It said, now, next to it. And it was a Bible verse. I can't, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it said, those who cry for the Lord need but to wait on him, and he will fulfill his work in you. And I just stayed up crying all night, and I was like, what the heck? I was like, okay, fine. And it was from my, my little buddy Lindsay over there, who I'd met like two weeks earlier and kind of blew off. But she texted me two weeks later at this exact moment, and she just listened to God because he told her to do it, so she did. And it was crazy, and I, I said, okay, we should probably talk. 
And so <laughs> he gave me this incredible mentor, friend. I don't know, it was just, it was amazing what he did through her and the work that he did in me. Showed me so many things, and she's not perfect, but she's great. And uh, <laughs> so that was awesome. Um, and then after that, he gave me the Holy Spirit. And I think this is something that we miss as Christians so often is we get caught up in the Bible and understanding things and all of that. But he gave me the Holy Spirit for real, and it was crazy. And I remember Lindsay asked me one day, she's like, hey, have you ever had the Holy Spirit? Have you ever been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you received it? And I was like, no, what, what does that mean? She's like, do you want it? I was like, I'm sure. And uh, she's, <laughs> and she's like, okay, we'll do that. But not right now. It's not the right time. We'll wait. So we went for a hike a couple weeks later, and uh, and she says, oh, we're at the top of the Enderby Cliffs. She Thank you, Allison. I'm so glad I'm not baptizing your husband today. <laughs> no offense, Zolt. Anytime. Zani, why don't you come up? Are you going to come by yourself? Or is your mom going to be? No? Okay. Give Zani a big round of applause. Um, hi, I'm Zani. I want to get baptized is because um, these past few weeks I really feel like God has been talking to me. I'm Hermin, Zani's mom. Um, Zani grew up in a Christian home. She's um, always been known the Lord, or we taught him that. And she's been dedicated as a baby. And the last couple of months, she actually came out of her own to us one night. And she said she really felt that God spoke to her heart and that she wants to get baptized. So when this opportunity came around and we got the email that there's going to be baptism, Zani came down again one night and she's like, Daddy, did you hear that in church? They're going to do a baptism. Can you please sign me up? So um, she's very happy and excited to get baptized. And she know I know that she hears from God and that she um, wants to, to live a life that bless and glorifies him and um, build his kingdom. Oh, you did so well, Zani. They are quite scary. I have to look at them every week. Oh, it's so good. So this is what's going to happen. I'm going to get in to uh, baptize this lovely group. And, um, and I'd encourage you that while we do that is to pray for them and then encourage them when they come out of the waters. This is a very special moment. As you can see, there's some emotion quite rightly connected to it. We want to pray for you and your life. This is church family. And uh, this is a very, very important moment. Jesus... Uh, gave us a direct command that if you know him and you follow after him, you should be baptized. And so, um, good for you guys. It's really, really cool. And so, I will ask them a couple of questions when we're in the tub, and uh, and then we uh, we baptize. So, 
Okay. So, Tyler, you ready? Okay. <laughs>